0: Well, on Tuesday night, this past Tuesday night, I uh, went home after the tech committee meeting and I went up to Christina in the room and something was definitely wrong. Uh, She was pretty emotional and and she uh, had some extremely disturbing news um, to share with me that I I heard um, some of the worst news that I've ever heard. Our friends Mark and Michelle Schlemmer Uh, Their little three year old boy, Luke, had drowned in the bathtub of their home. And Daniel, their six year old, almost drowned. Uh, He's in critical condition at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. The tragedy intensifies as national news has reported on it. And Michelle has been charged with the unspeakable. She's in police custody and will almost certainly be convicted. Mark and Michelle are members of North Park Church, where I was a pastor. Christina had play dates with Michelle, where our kids played together. We went to a birthday party in their home. Uh, North Park Church has been in the news, and uh, to state it mildly, this has completely rocked the church. How do you make sense of that? How do you work through something that is that heartbreaking? Look around. Things are not okay. This is life. Bad things happen. We can't stop them. We can't ignore them. We can't dismiss them. We'd like to go on thinking that life is okay, but life is not okay. What will fix us? I mean, what has enough power to make things right again? Maybe education will finally produce the cultural change that we all need. Maybe technology or advancements in science will give the progress needed to set things straight. Maybe if we just had a little more money or went shopping one more time, then we could buy our way out of the pain. Maybe the party life or retreating to movies and music and entertainment and sports will provide enough to make sense of all this. When will we realize that none of this, none of this, nothing of this world has any power to set things right or to finally deal with the pain of life. No earthly pleasure can give us promise beyond tomorrow. All earthly pleasures are simply temporary anesthetics that wear off and never really heal the real problem of life. We need something more powerful. We need supreme power to prove to us beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is something firm to stand on. An absolute which surpasses evil and pain and suffering. A supreme justice which rights all wrongs and delivers to us indestructible joy amidst pain. A lasting joy and pleasure. Now we're all probably familiar with Jesus feeding the 5,000. But do we understand how profoundly it impacts our lives? Verses 1 through 15 is a miracle that sets up Christ's teaching for the rest of the chapter. A teaching that caused many of his disciples to actually stop following him. The next few weeks may be a turning point in your life. This may be what you need. God may reveal to you some new things that you have never seen in scripture before, and it could change and alter the rest of your life, the trajectory of your life. And I hope the power of Jesus is revealed to you through this next little section here and beyond in a very fresh way. So let's pray and and ask the Holy Spirit to do that all-important work. God, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will be active and alive in our midst here, leading people to understand the Scripture in a completely um, fresh way. Hit us hard with truth. Hit us hard with your power so that at the end of the day, we can have hope for tomorrow and hope for eternity. In Christ's name we pray, amen. To best understand the setting of John 6, you also need to study Matthew 14, Mark 6, and Luke 9, which also describe this miracle. We begin about 90 miles north of Jerusalem in Galilee. The Passover was at hand, meaning it was likely either 6 or 12 months after the end of chapter 5, based on the Jewish feast calendar. The disciples had just returned to Jesus from a very tiring uh, ministry trip that they uh, took, a missionary journey of healing and teaching. John the Baptist had already been executed by Herod. Herod heard of the fame of Jesus and thought that he might be John back from the dead because of his miracles, and that's why Jesus left Jerusalem for Galilee. Verse 1 says, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Well, around 20 AD, Herod Antipas built a city on the west shore of the lake and called it Tiberias after Emperor Tiberius. so the lake eventually assumed the city's name. The Sea of Galilee is actually the largest freshwater lake in Israel, and it's absolutely beautiful. I highly recommend you look up pictures online of uh, Galilee and the Sea of Galilee, tremendous. Jesus sailed across the northeastern, to the northeastern shore, retreating for some quiet rest and time alone with his disciples in the uh, desolate place or in the countryside. Well, Jesus was becoming famous. The news of his power and miracles was spreading rapidly, so verse 2 reports a large crowd was following him. As Jesus and his disciples sailed, people heard about it, and some saw them sailing. And so people began leaving the towns and running around the north part of the lake where they were headed and would eventually uh, dock. And so we're told in the Gospels that Jesus had compassion on them and healed their sick and began to teach them many things. Jesus was unlike any other doctor that they had ever encountered. And verse 2 says that they followed him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So why the crowd? Well, they were amazed at his miracles. They were amazed at what he could do. Maybe they could get something out of him. But they hung around long enough. Jesus and his, his disciples retreated up the mountain into an area called the Golan Heights, a highland decorated with green grass with a magnificent view overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The view from the Golan Heights, you just check it out. Type in Golan Heights, uh, whatever, magnificent view. For some reason, when I think, and my mind goes back to biblical history, I think of dirt, just like there was dirt, brown dirt everywhere, and everything was dry and dusty. Well, that's not how a lot of Israel is. It's a beautiful place, and when it's green, it's just wonderful to look at. And uh, Jesus retreated to this high place with his disciples to get away. Verse 3 tells us of Jesus going up the mountain and sitting down with his disciples. So they needed rest. They were tired, and that's what they were going up there for. Well, the Passover was near, so the Jews were thinking about their liberation from Egypt and their flight into the wilderness. In the first century, Jews lived beneath the oppression of Rome. And so freedom and deliverance were in the forefront of their minds, hence a massive crowd gathering around a man who teaches with power and authority, but more, a powerful miracle worker. So you can see the connection with the crowd. Of course they're going to follow him. Now before we move on, take your minds back to Moses who led Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness with no food and how God provided them, for them, the bread from heaven called manna. What is it? They didn't know what it was. And uh, God provided that food to satisfy their hunger. So just keep that in mind. So this was the theater in which this miraculous drama captivated thousands of people. Verses 5 and 6 report, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Thousands are coming. Thousands, a huge group of people. He knew why they were coming, and he knew that they didn't understand. It was getting late, and Jesus was likely very tired, yet he was filled with compassion for people. And as the crowd approached, he began with Philip. You know, Jesus will test your faith and then prove he is worthy of it. Jesus will test your faith and then prove to you that he's worthy of your faith. Jesus tested Philip, the same guy in John 1 that said to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip followed because Philip believed, but how deep was his faith? As the crowd was approaching, Jesus asked Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Why is Jesus asking Philip that question? Where are we going to get bread, man? Where do you think we're going to feed all these people, buddy? Why is he asking? He was seeing if Philip was able to apply what he'd seen Jesus do with this situation that is now in front of them. Can you bridge that, Philip? Can you make the application of what my power is and apply it to this current situation in our lives? It wasn't that long ago, Philip. That you saw some amazing things at my hand. Can you make that application? We know from the other gospels that because it was late, the disciples actually wanted to send the people away. And they suggest that to Jesus, a way to get food for themselves. And Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Isn't that awesome? Jesus telling the disciples, go ahead, feed thousands of people. That was impossible. That was impossible. Philip responded, verse 7. 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little bit, to get a little. Now, have you ever completely missed something that was really obvious? Now, where did I put that pencil? Boom, it's in your ear, right? Have you ever been there? I've been there, just completely missed it. Philip missed it. The other disciples did too. Even though Philip saw Jesus do miracles, he still looked at the crowd and thought, this is impossible. Philip couldn't think outside the box where the God of the impossible lives. 200 denarii was around eight months' salary. And even that wouldn't cover the cost. They were in a desolate place. They were in an abandoned area, deserted. No people, no houses, no restaurants, no produce markets, just empty land. Empty, green grass. I guess you could chew on the grass for a while, but it wouldn't get very far. Where would they get food? Well, Jesus was testing Philip's faith. All of the disciples really, seeing if they could make the connection between an impossible need and a supernatural provision. In a little while, Philip would see. Thousands would see. Philip's faith was weak, but Jesus proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was absolutely worthy of of Philip's faith. Peter's brother Andrew was great. Verses 8 and 9. Hey, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Right? Now they were sent out to, to check around and see, and he's like, hey, I got something, but it's, pro- it's probably not that cool. It's probably not that good. It's probably not going to go that far. And Jesus told them to go out and see. Five loaves, two fish, that was it. And that would not feed thousands of people. It was time for Jesus to make the point again. Jesus doesn 't ask you to believe in something that he has not already given you ample evidence to believe. Jesus not, does not ask you to believe in something that he has not already given you ample evidence to believe. A few weeks ago, I went down to the old middle school. I think it 's the i u 13 if i 'm not mistaken down down uh, in town and I went to a Bible to school presentation in one of the ministries that we support here. And as I was going in, these teenagers were congregated uh, outside and a few of them were on bikes. And so one of the, the um, uh, people that were out there, he was a teenage kid, was on a bike and, and one was laying on the ground and that guy was going to jump over this guy laying on the ground. Now they assured me that this was going to work out all right. Because they're like that kid has sponsors now, whatever that means. I guess he's a professional, but I'm like, sure. So I, I naturally, absolutely, this is a great idea. I'm this is sweet. So he's way back at the end of the street, and he starts high tailing it towards this kid, and he's running and he's running and he's gonna bunny hop over him. And right when he got to his head, he actually didn't make it up high enough and cracked the kid's head. No, I'm kidding. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't. <laughs> He bunny-hopped the kid and completely cleared his entire body, landed, and kept riding. And I'm like, oh, that is sweet. That is awesome. I'm glad I waited outside. So um, <laughs> it was cool. Now, if you ask those kids, do you believe that this guy's good enough to clear some wooden crates, what are they going to say? Absolutely he's good enough to clear some wooden crates. We just saw him jump over a kid. I think some crates will be fine. Uh, Why would they say that? Because he's already proven himself. He's already did it. Done it. Jesus had just healed a bunch of sick people in the crowd. He healed the official's son. He turned water into wine. He probably did more miracles. Wouldn't those events be a little hard to forget and to apply to this situation? Eventually, at the Last Supper, Jesus would tell his disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus didn't ask these men to trust Him as the Son of God by encouraging blind faith. He gave them evidence. He was living evidence. They were with Him when He fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies, and they were with Him when He did spectacular miracles. He showed them that He was God's Son. He revealed to them his glory and honor and power and dominion over all things. And we have it all in front of us by eyewitness account of reliable, incredible men that have written it down for us to observe. We can see, see through his word, his power. God is not asking you to believe in something that he has not already given you Incredible evidence to believe. John 6 is evidence. Trusting in Christ is not blind faith. The call to Christ is not a call to come blindly and without your mind and without logic and reason and to somehow just, you know, accept Jesus for who he is without anything affirming who he actually was. This is not intellectually antiquated or senseless. Christianity absolutely makes sense. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Now, there's something more that you should know from this. Matthew's account tells us it was 5,000 men besides women and children. A reasonable guess would put the crowd at fifteen to 25,000 people. How do you get 20,000 people to sit down? I'm not sure. They were open to see what he'd do. So if he says sit down, I think he's already earned the credibility for them to listen, sit down, and wait to see what he's going to do. Mark and Luke mentioned some logistics. The crowd sat in groups of 50s and uh, 100s, and so there was a distribution plan Very practically, they were anticipating something, that people wanted to see something. Extravagant compassion, grace, and power are the fuel of faith. Extravagant compassion, grace, and power are the fuel of faith. Verses 11 through 13. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, now that's one of the reasons that we pray before meals. Jesus did. So if he did... Might as well model it off that, give thanks to God where the blessings come from. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus took five barley loaves and two fish, multiplied them, and through his disciples, distributed the food to close to 20,000 people, hungry people who were sitting on the green grass, overlooking the beautiful scenery of Lake Tiberias. This is some incredible scene. You need to see something very significant about the nature of God in this passage. How many fish did they eat, or how much fish did they eat? It says, as much as they wanted. What does verse 12 say? It it says they ate their fill. It was all you can eat for 20,000 people. Everyone was satisfied. No one went home hungry. All right? Big Bill, who puts uh, buffets out of business, all right, he went home completely full. That was good, you know? That guy, that man, who had a big appetite, went away full, completely satisfied, not going to eat anymore. Have you ever been to a restaurant and they, you order off of the menu and they bring you your plate and right away you're like, uh-oh, I'm walking away hungry. That is not going to do this. I mean, it's just not going to work. Have you ever been there? I've been there. Now, if you're anywhere like me, the food can look like artwork and that's cool. No sweat in it, but it better fill me. I better go, I don't want a burger after I just paid to get, you know, it just doesn't work. Each of the Gospels, the other Gospels, says the same thing. They all ate and were satisfied. What quality of wine did Jesus make at the wedding? The finest of wine. 20,000 people were satisfied and there were leftovers. Leftovers. This tells you something significant about God. He is extravagant. His blessings are abundant, never scarce or scant. Verses 12 and 13 tell us Jesus made so much food that there were 12 baskets full, filled with leftover fragments. Have your eyes ever been too big for your stomach? Maybe you at a buffet or something, you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And by the time you get to the end of the line and back to your table, you just look like a glutton. It's like, wow. And then you get into eating it, and you're like, man, that's not going in here. I'm just full. And that's what happened. As they were distributing, people were like, yeah, I'll take that, I'll take that, I'm going to eat this. And they're eating, they're eating, they're eating, and then at the end, they're like, oh, man, I can't eat anymore. Let's give it back. That's where the 12 baskets came from. They couldn't eat anymore. And it's awesome that Jesus was concerned about waste, So he told the disciples to gather the leftovers, and then what I think happened, and this is just a conjecture here, that he sent that home with people, maybe for the rest of the week, and he sent the the bread home. There was some leftover. What did they do with it? I think they sent it home. Nothing wasted. Now, some might interpret this as God wants to pour out his earthly blessings on you, and and just dumb earthly things on you, And, and... If that's as far as the interpretation goes, it would diminish the extravagance of his son, which he gave us. Jesus is extravagant grace. Jesus is the extravagant grace of God given to us. More on that in the coming weeks. This historical account reveals not only the divinity and compassion of Jesus, but also extravagant grace. Jesus makes the impossible happen. And then he goes above and beyond there is no one like jesus no one does it like him now many liberal scholars dismiss this miracle they say jesus simply inspired the crowd to share what food they already had with them and that view is textually dishonest and illogical why would the disciples want to send the crowd away for food if they already had enough with them why would Jesus test the disciples and say, You give them something to eat? Why mention only five loaves and two fish? Why mention the impossibility of 200 denarii purchasing enough food for everyone? If they all shared, Jesus really wouldn't be the central point of the passage, would he? And maybe that's the point of that interpretation. This was without a doubt a miracle. In my reading, I encountered an argument that made a lot of sense to me. In the biblical accounts, we have no evidence of anyone ever doubting the validity of Jesus Christ's miracles. No one claimed he performed tricks or magic. Jesus performed so many public miracles, it was impossible to discredit them as anything but supernatural. Even the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus, you could probably say hated him the most, didn't deny his ultimate miracle, the resurrection. Instead, they made up a lie to circulate that, to interject a a conspiracy theory into culture about them stealing the body of Jesus. Logic without faith is dead, but faith that is alive is always logical. Not only liberals undermine this famous passage, but so have countless well-intentioned pastors and Sunday school teachers by making the main point anything other than Jesus. This passage is not about a little boy who decided to give Jesus what little he had and Jesus took his generosity and used it for great things. It's not about people sharing with each other so that a little goes a long way. Nor is the focal point the five loaves and two fish or even 20,000 people. This text is about Jesus who has the supernatural power to work unfathomable things. And therefore has proven to be the only one powerful enough to pay for your redemption and forgiveness of sin in full. This is about the Son of God giving conclusive evidence for His identity as the Messiah, as God's anointed, as the one final sacrifice sufficient to absorb the wrath of God in full and legally pardon you with His own blood. This is about Jesus being the bread of life who will satisfy you beyond full. John included this incredible miracle in his book, not to tell you about a little philanthropic boy, but to show you the extravagant compassion, grace, and power of Jesus to build your trust in him. Not just to say, yeah, I believe that happened, but to produce in you a faith so radical that you forsake your love affair with sin and turn to the only God-man powerful enough to help you face the horrific realities of life and your own sin and to give you more joy than you could ever imagine. Nothing else can do that for you because nothing else can rival his power do you think that a new iPad pad or iPod can help you deal with sin and death? Can entertainment really help you work through divorce or abuse or neglect? Can alcohol make sense of human trafficking and war and your past mistakes? We need something more powerful, folks, than earthly anesthetics, than earthly pleasures, which may dull the pain for a moment, but ultimately leave us desperate and unable to accept a reality that is not going away. Jesus is the miraculous but misunderstood prophet and king. Approximately 20,000 people had seen Jesus do the impossible. There was no other explanation, no competing hypotheses. There were five loaves and two fish and everybody ate. That's a miracle. That's power. What was the response? Verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now if we stop there, it seems pretty good. We're off to a good start. They must have believed To some level that he fulfilled Deuteronomy 18.15 where Moses told Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then later on, verse 18, where God said to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the Jews were anticipating a prophet, someone to come to them, that God would send them. His miracles validated that he was indeed that prophet. What they didn't seem to get was that the prophet comes and speaks the word of God. The message is the mission. If you don't listen carefully to God's prophet, you miss the point. Now, how do we know the people misunderstood Jesus? Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now let's understand that. Israel was not the great superpower anymore. The Jews lived beneath Roman oppression. Long gone were the glory days of David and Solomon. What could get them back their political supremacy? What could catapult them to the top think about a king with unparalleled wisdom who could provide abundant food at no cost and immediately heal every disease and ailment without excessive taxation or the abuse of government power or the threat to religious liberty no defective welfare system just one powerful king who could give the nation everything that they wanted that's exciting that's appealing to people Maybe Jesus could finally liberate them from the Roman Empire. This was the leader they had hoped for, that they had longed for, and that was their problem. John MacArthur wrote Their reaction typifies many who want a Christ that makes no demands of them, but of whom they can make their selfish personal requests. Their focus was political freedom, not spiritual freedom. This was his moment to rise to power. This was carpe diem for Jesus. Seize what's yours. Take it. You have an army. That was one thing that I, that I read, that you would have had 5,000 men oppressed by Roman rule, and so in that 5,000, you have a military, a bunch of military recruits for a powerful political uprising. Take what's yours, Jesus, but what does Jesus do? He retreats back up in the mountains, alone. He doesn't take the opportunity. Something else was on his mind. He knew they wanted a political revolutionary. He knew they were completely missing the point. Jesus came for a greater purpose. He came to liberate people from something more grievous than Roman oppression. An earthly kingdom was not a big enough vision for Jesus Christ. It was too small of a goal. His mission was to fully and finally liberate God's people from the oppression of their sin. A mission only accomplished through the humiliation of the cross. Jesus is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, but he speaks words infinitely more powerful than political liberation. He speaks of spiritual liberation. Jesus is the king of kings, but he rules a kingdom not of this world. Do you realize the weight of this truth? If this is not a miracle but rather a corporate act of generosity. If Jesus never multiplied this lunch to feed thousands, if Jesus never did any miracles but was only a good teacher, then the man who died on that cross was simply that, a man just like you and me, a human being, and that's it. And if Jesus was only a man, there is no sufficient sacrifice for sin. There is no resurrection, and as Paul says, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And there is no way to make sense of anything or have any hope that any wrong will ever be made right. But the reality is, 20,000 people ate that day and walked away satisfied. They walked away that evening because Jesus multiplied the bread and fish. Jesus is man and God. There is a sufficient sacrifice for sin. There is a resurrection. And our faith in Christ is precious because he saves us from our sin. The cross is the lens through which we see all things. And our hope in justice will be done. Either by the death of God's son on the cross or by eternity in hell. Here is how the gospel makes sense of Michelle Schlemmer. The gospel says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans 10, 9, and 11. Michelle's crime is heinous. Michelle's crime is shameful. But if she repents of her sin and trusts in Christ alone, she will be completely forgiven. Her sins washed clean. By Jesus, because yes, his sacrifice is sufficient enough to pay for even that. And to assuage the wrath of God from her in full. The gospel says no one is beyond the powerful saving grace of the cross. And we yearn to see redemption come. So when you sit there and you struggle with your sin that just keeps on coming back, if you flee to the cross, my answer for you, the biblical answer for you, Jesus tells you, you can be forgiven. Just turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what I long for this church to experience. True repentance and faith. And for for God to just spark a revival in Penrhyn and Manheim and Lancaster County and Pennsylvania and in our nation, which needs this so badly, this message of the cross, because a lot of people are screwed up, and what's their answer? Where do they go at the end of the day? Jesus is the only answer, because he can forgive you of anything if you flee to the cross. And yet the sobering reality is also this, without repentance and faith God will make all things right. And His justice will be satisfied through eternal torment in hell. The gospel does what nothing else can do. It makes things right again, either by pardoning the worst of sinners through Christ or sentencing them to eternal hell. Grace is justice, and hell is justice. The gospel is the power and hope of justice. The gospel is the power and hope of redemption. The gospel is Jesus. Let's pray. God, what on earth can we say when we see the massive atrocities committed by man How do we not get buried under grief? God, help us to take sin really seriously and to not dismiss it away. How terrible is the view that somehow you, a holy God, are just going to let sinners go to do whatever they want and not bring judgment. That would make you a terrible judge, but you are a just and good and fair and right judge. You are righteous And so you will punish all wrongdoing, either by pouring out, as you did on your son, the full uh, weight of your wrath that he absorbed for sinners, or you will pour it out on sinners in hell. I pray that that reality becomes very, very clear to us, God, that we would take it very seriously. And that we would yearn to see people come out of condemnation to experience a loving Father who provides every good thing for them. To experience Jesus Christ, the Savior who has provided for them. God, he turned the bread and the fish into a meal, a buffet that fed 20 some thousand people. That's impossible, and that power is the same power that liberates us from our sin. This is why we can trust Christ with our lives, with everything, and I pray that someone here, if they're hearing this and they're like, I don't know Jesus, that they would just recognize in their heart the heinousness of their sin, that they would turn from it, neglect it, hate it, and turn to Jesus Christ by faith, making the choice today, by your grace, to receive justification in the cross, to receive freedom. All they need to do is turn to Christ. And I pray that they do that. By your grace, save some people here today through this message. God, thank you for all that you are doing in our midst. We love you. You're powerful. You're awesome. And we just want to get behind Jesus and follow him wherever he leads. In Christ's name we pray, amen.